it is impossible for me to overstate the importance of enfolding someone's trauma story into the redemption story of Scripture throughout the entire biblical narrative. That's where we know things are going. And to give people hope of what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will see through to completion, Philippians 1.6, man, you're, you're preachers. There are people who are still alive because of the good word you gave them. There are people who thought, it would be better for me not to exist because they're so overwhelmed by darkness. And you probably don't even know it, but you gave them a word of hope. And they went home from church and said, maybe God will see through to completion the good work he began in me. And they have hope now. And I know that because I've heard stories like that, not about my preaching, I'm hoping God does that, but I've heard story after story after story where God is so faithful to his sheep that he has led you as the shepherds to feed his sheep well. And because of your faithfulness of teaching the narrative of scripture, of highlighting the golden thread of the personal work of Jesus Christ and what that means, people have survived the darkness of suicidal ideation and they've gone home, they have experienced more hope and healing because of your ministry. That's some encouraging stuff. God's using people in ways they have no idea. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 227. I'm your host, Mike Neglia, and the voice that you just heard is that of Dr. Justin Holcomb. Dr. Holcomb is someone that I've been learning from for more than a decade, and it was a real privilege to speak to him via Zoom for this conversation. I found that in real life, he is just as caring, compassionate, and just plain old smart as he comes off in his books. So we talk about his theological journey, his ministry experiences that in many ways began in Calvary Chapel, and now he finds himself as an Episcopal priest and has served as the canon for vocations in the Diocese of Central Florida since 2013. Uh, he teaches theology and apologetics at Reformed Theological Seminary and Gordon-Conwell. Uh, we speak about death metal, the Book of Common Prayer, law gospel distinctions, and caring for victims of sexual assault or physical abuse. So this episode is going to be released on Tuesday, June 21st, 2022. I don't know if you're listening to this on the day that it comes out. If so, happy Tuesday. Or if you're listening to it in the distant future. Uh, but if you're listening to it on the 21st of June, uh, this means that we're only a few days away from the Calvary Chapel CGN International Conference in Costa Mesa, California. I'm going to be hopping on a plane and flying over there, and I look forward to meeting as many of you as possible while I'm at this conference. A lot of previous guests from this show are either speaking or leading workshops. Ray Ortland, Amy or Ewing, Dominic Dunn, uh, Nick Cady. Uh, listen, they even let me have a workshop, so I'm excited. 
Uh, for those of you that are going to be there, I look forward to seeing you. For those of you who aren't able to take the trip to Costa Mesa, uh, there also is an online streaming option that you can register for at conference.calvarychapel.com. So I hope that you're able to attend one way or the other, either in person or online. Okay, I'm going to get out of your way and let you listen to a very encouraging conversation that I have with Dr. Justin Holcomb. All right, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective podcast. I'm yeah honored and excited to be speaking to Dr. Justin Holcomb. Uh, good morning, Justin. How are you doing? Good morning, Mike. I'm doing great, and it is good to be with you. Here, okay, two things. The first question I always ask is, uh, could you tell us about your your first sermon that you ever preached? But before that, I have a I have an ambush journalism question for you. Okay. Um, I I heard you mention in in one of your other interviews that you've done that you used to be in a punk band. I'd love to hear about that. Yeah, it, it was. Uh... It was kind of a speed metal, death metal, punk band type of thing. It was like a, a death metal, punk, speed fusion. And it was called Mansoul, M-A-N-S-O-U-L. Yeah. And uh, I was the lead screamer, growler. I had no and still have no musical ability, but I was surrounded by uh, an amazing bassist who was like a jazz, jazz fusion-y bassist. And then the guitarist was more of like a hair band guitarist and the drummer did like, like country and some rock. And then we kind of got together and and threw that together and thought, what would be fun to perform and do? So, uh, I, we, we, uh, we played a bunch of different gigs. We were in, uh, Southwest Florida, which was just South of Tampa, which is the death metal capital. I was going to say Florida is known for its death metal. Yeah. So we, we, we played at, we played at venues, uh, like Janice landing and, uh, brass parrot or whatever the parrot thing was called. And so there are bands uh, like um, Cannibal Corpse, Obituary, Deicide all came through and we may or may not have um, opened up for them. We were, we were a, uh, we were all Christians and a lot, I was the lyricist. Uh, I was going to Bible college at the time. So a lot of the lyrics were scripture yeah, uh, and, and Christian type of things that Christians might scream about in a band and uh, but none of the bands that we opened for knew, and we opened up for some, you know, some some Christian uh, metal bands uh, also that came through in that in that that time of like nineteen ninety one to ninety three ish around you know early nineties Christian metal scene is what we were part of. Wow, that is yeah. really exciting. That is that is awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I love that. Good, um, good, when, uh, good, good, gotcha journalism on that one. That was awesome. <laughs> I didn't even warn you in advance. Uh, when I was in Bible college, me and my friends were in a uh, kind of a grindcore crust band called Stab to Death and kind of based on Ehud and Eglon. Um, and yeah, lots of, there's a lot of good things to scream about from the Bible, you know? And there's tons, <laughs> tons. Okay. I don't know. I, I Yeah. Good question for the beginning for me. Hopefully it didn't just isolate much of the normal audience that's listening to this. So let's, let's reel them back. Uh, so okay. in addition, in addition to uh, man's soul, um, you also have spoken into microphones uh, about things from the Bible. When was the first time that you like taught the Bible? Or what was your first sermon that you ever preached? 
the the first time I taught the Bible was uh, after I graduated from high school and I started like a young adult college and career group. I was the vice president of my youth group and we all graduated. And so I started teaching a, a Friday night Bible study that grew uh, pretty large, just a, a couple opened up their home. And uh, out of that came numerous marriages. It was one year uh, and then we just disbanded and kind of went our way. Hmm. Uh, numerous marriages and, and uh, about three or four of uh, people in that became pastors and still are. Wow. Uh, so that was the first time I was just teaching through Romans. But the first time I ever preached was in a Calvary Chapel setting. I had just started attending Calvary Chapel in Sarasota, Florida, and the pastor, Carl Dixon, found out that I like studying theology. And he said, well, I like I like young I like young men studying theology, and so if, if I can help, let me know. So I would, I would go take theology classes from him on Sunday morning. I think at like seven o'clock. I didn't realize how crazy this was that a pastor would teach a theology class before he taught and preached two different two sermons, uh, and and uh, so he'd meet with us, teach theology. And then we'd go to the first service and listen to the sermon. We'd talk about what he was going to change for the second sermon, and then he would do that. Um, so that was my setting was Calvary yeah. Chapel, Sarasota. On my birthday, I think it was like my 19th, maybe 20th birthday, somewhere around there, uh, The Pastor Carl and the associate pastor came to my work and handed me a, a cassette tape. Yeah, and this is back when you know you used to record sermons, right? On a cassette tape, you yeah. make duplicates. And he came in and he handed me this tape. He said, "Hey, this is for you." And it had a date in the future that was on it, a few yeah. a few weeks away, with my name and a yeah. sermon title. It says "To Be Determined." And I said, "What? What's this?" And he said, "Well, your your it's your birthday, and some of God's uh, greatest preachers started when they were 17, 18, 19, like Spurgeon." And I was like, oh, okay. And he said, so we want you to preach on a Sunday night. Pick the date and uh, preach. So my first time really kind of doing that in a in a church setting, proclaiming the word to the saints type of moment, I was on a Sunday night at Calvary Chapel, Sarasota. And my text was Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6, the Shema. Yeah. Yeah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength these commandments that I give to you are to be on your hearts. And that was the passage. I, I love that. That's that what a what a honoring and what an encouraging influence that you had in in your life. And I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah, uh, it, it was it was amazing to have a pastor who invests that much uh was so encouraging. Um and uh it was about a 45 minute sermon. And all I remember, my mom and dad were there. They they were seemed very proud. The pastor was so encouraging. Um, the feedback was really encouraging, also. But I think I was surrounded by really nice people. Maybe it was maybe it was useful and helpful. And it, it yeah. probably I said true things. But if you know that passage, you know that's actually a summary of the law of God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, strength. And we learn in Levit Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. And that's Jesus actually, when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He actually went from, you know, love the Lord your God with everything you got and love your neighbor as yourself. And you pick two Old Testament summaries of the two main dimensions of the law. And so I, I basically told everyone that they should love my, my sermon. I still remember it. My sermon was, you're supposed to love God oh. with your heart, with your soul and with your strength. So with your mind, 
with your emotions and with your actions. And so I basically just told people what to do. Okay. Uh, and again, it was true. Yeah. But you didn't walk away. I was basically putting um, bricks in people's backpacks. <laughs> just yeah. like, here, yeah. here's some imperatives. Here's some commands. Uh, I didn't talk very much about the, the, the grounding of why to respond with love to God. I didn't say things like, because he first loved you, you love him. I just said, you're supposed to love God, so do it, yeah. which is about, I mean, that is the heightened summary of the law, which we know from the reading the rest of scripture is the law drives you to repentance. It drives yeah. you to Christ. It, as Paul says, it can kill. That's its job. And it, and so I, uh, as I look back on it in God's kindness and the people's kindness, um, uh, uh, they encouraged, um, they, they, I would imagine that someone, some people could have had, I imagine what I would have said to myself if I would have heard that I probably would have been tempted to say, Hey, young man, Hey, you said really true things, but you probably crushed some souls. I probably wasn't going to, I wouldn't have been as kind as everyone else was to me, mm -hmm. which is helpful for me to remember now yes. as I'm talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So you, yeah, essentially all law, no gospel, um, truth, but not, um, the empowering grace to live that out. Exactly. I, I didn't, I, uh, you know, different people have different, uh, categories and, 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 and parent. And I, uh, I didn't know how close we were. That's exactly it. It was all law. And I'm sure there was some gospel hints there, but I wasn't okay. intentional about talking about that at all. I was teaching the text and it was all imperative with no indicative. Yeah. Uh, it, it was all, um, it was all command without, you know, the law, the law does not generate the ability to obey it. And I didn't talk about the fuel for gratitude and love for God because he first loved us in Jesus Christ. But yes, that's exactly what I did. Yeah. Okay. Well, then the, right into my next question, how have you grown since then? Or, or what does kind of teaching and preaching look, I, I was going to say look like for you now, but then I also know that there's been a, a kind of a big journey between when you were 19 to however you, however old you are now. And 48, been, I'm 48. So 30, I was trying 30 to, years. trying to gently. <laughs> yeah. um, so what are the like now? Okay. So I know that since then in Sarasota and then, and then now there's, there's been kind of a, a theological journey that you've been on. Uh, you've, you've kind of lived in a few different, even like denominational like networks. Um, what, what have been kind of like the developments in your theology of preaching in these different homes that you've had? If that's uh, not too broad of a question. Yeah. Well, let, let me just give you a snapshot of the journey so people have some hooks to hang comments I'm saying on. And so I, uh, I was in a Pentecostal setting up until I was about 17. And so the preaching there was not as texturally oriented. Um, and so the stereotypical kind of Pentecostal setting, I, I left that church was a kind of brought into the Calvary Chapel setting from 1718 until, and that was through Bible college and seminary. So about seven or so years, and I was in a Calvary Chapel setting. And then I moved to Atlanta, Georgia to do my PhD. And that's where I, I worshiped in, and I didn't serve very much in a church setting. I was, I was getting my PhD. I was working. <laughs> so right. yeah. uh, I, I worshiped at a PCA church, Presbyterian church, uh, in America for a year. And then I started attending an Anglican uh, Episcopal 
church. And then I went to University of Virginia where I, I started serving and preaching in an Episcopal church when I am now ordained in the Episcopal church. So that's been ever since 2002, 2003, uh, maybe around 2000. So about, you know, 22 years or so. Uh, so um, the the role of preaching has changed in those settings, uh, you know, 30 to 45 minute uh sermons in uh, a Calvary Chapel setting, which is are distinctly expositional going through the passage. I still I still go through the passage. I still teach what the text is saying. I don't kind of summarize it and launch off into applications. Uh, but the setting is, you know, in Calvary Chapel, you're going to go through, hey, we're going through this book of the Bible. We're in Romans 5. Okay, now we're going to do Romans 6. Now we're doing Romans 7. Well, now in my setting, we have a lectionary where yeah. we actually have a lot of Bible. In a lectionary setting, every Sunday we have an Old Testament passage, we have a psalm, we have a New Testament epistle passage, and we have a gospel passage. Right. So we actually have four scripture readings, and they usually are connected to each other thematically in some way according to what we are, what's happening in that church year. So we actually have tons of scripture from which to connect. So we don't, we're not going through a text um, week by week. Uh, but it's still very uh, the biblically oriented. The foundation is the narrative of Scripture, and and that also allows us uh, in the church service to do you know maybe uh, you know I usually preach fifteen to twenty minutes, which is more of a proclamation of the good news from the text of that day. Okay, and then we have Christian education hour where you can. Or, or so, where you can actually go through and do more of the didactic teaching. Hey, this is what the text is doing. So we actually have, in those settings, when you have two opportunities, it's changed up how I think about my role in the worship service. And so my, to, to get back to your question, uh, it's developed because of the kind of church homes I've been serving in. Right. Um, I'm not opposed to, you know, 45 minute, let's go through the text expositionally. I, the main thing that I really want is I want people to hear a proclamation of good news. What has God done for redemption, to conquer the enemy, to forgive us our sins, to make things new? What is God doing? And not so much uh, what should you be doing as the heartbeat of everything. So I, I want to shorthand it. I, want the, I think the focus should be on the God-human word movement of redemption, revealing, loving, initiating, and caring, and then secondarily, the human God word and human-to-human movement of how do we respond to that? That's, for me, that's the heartbeat, which that, uh, and, and so just what's changed for me is just being around good preachers and seeing good preachers and how they do it differently and how that might influence how I think about communication, how I think about approaching the text, how I think about illustrations and, and some of the craft of preaching. Yeah. That's, that's a lot. All right. I got, <laughs> thank you. Okay. I'm, I'm yeah familiar with the, the book of common prayer. I was trying to reach for mine, but I, I, I think I wouldn't be able to, to reach it. Um, a couple of years ago, I, I tried for my like daily devotions to read like the daily office um, every day. And sadly I failed. Um, but I, I, I kind of, I, I wondered, maybe I'll ask you, it's like, how exactly does it work? So when you have those four, those four sections of scripture is kind of the goal. I kind of tried to make this my goal to kind of see like, what is the, what is the, the rhythm? What is the pattern? What is the scarlet thread or something that connects between these things? Because they're, 
they're chosen with intentionality. Like there is something there. What? So when, when you have these four passages in front of you, um, is the goal to connect each one of them? Is the goal to pick one of them and focus on that? How, how does it work? What am I, what are we supposed to do with that? Yeah. And maybe this is some of the kind of like insider Anglican stuff that most, we talked about death metal, which is like, <laughs> most people don't get it. And then now we're talking about the insider, you know, book of common prayer stuff. But I think we would benefit from hearing you explain it. Well, the, the main thing when I brought up the lectionary was just to let people know um, there's a there's a benefit of having a lectionary because we we have we have a lot of Bible read in our churches. We have four chunks of scripture every Sunday. Now the Sunday lectionary we have three different years: year A, B, and C, and uh, and so there's different organization. So year A is focused on Matthew as the gospel and other passages. B is Mark and C is Luke. So the gospel passages are central with the other Old Testament texts always changing. So you get a lot of scripture just from Sundays in a three-year cycle. The daily office, you have morning and evening prayer, and you have uh, sometimes there's intentionality, but a lot of the time for the daily office, it's like, hey, we're gonna we're gonna be going through First Peter, and then we're going through the Gospel of Luke, and so it actually is just different tracks that are taking place. There's not necessarily in the daily office as organized of a thread that you might be able to pull. So on oh, the daily office, I was that looking is looking for it, and I couldn't find yeah, it all the time. <laughs> it's it's hard in the daily office, and sometimes it's just because hey. And that's where that's where the daily office is more expositional, more Calvary Chapel esque in the sense of, hey, we're we're going through this passage, we're we're going through First Thessalonians for uh, you know a few weeks, while we're also going through these Psalms and we're also going through uh, you know these other Bible passages. So there's less of an intentionality. The goal of in, in the daily office is in two year cycles, and so that's that's helpful. So if you're actually Worshiping on Sunday with the lectionary and then daily office, you're getting flooded with scripture. So the goal is actually to be immersed in the life of the the text. And at different times, different things will emerge. Um, now on Sundays, it's different because we have we have a specific prayer. It's called a collect, which is to collect the prayers. But we have a specific prayer uh, for that Sunday. And it's usually related to the themes of the text. And so there is, it's easier to find the thread through the lectionary on Sunday than there is than on the daily office. So. Yeah. I actually have been um, attending Evensong uh, this, most of this year, actually, this past year. There's um, in the city where I live, there's kind of two Anglican parishes, um, one of which is more conservative, um, and then one of which has nicer buildings <laughs> and um and um over over the years i've had great relationships with the conservative parish and have kind of even collaborated with like bible training events um with them but then have been i've just found that my soul needs on kind of a sunday afternoon to just go sit in a nice building and have the bible read to me and hear people sing and um and that's been very like kind of good for, for my soul. And then I find that that prayer at the end ties all those themes together um, so, so well. And I guess sometimes I'm like, like it's it's so good. And like, I'm just maybe at a place these days where it's just like, I just kind of need this. Um, and um, sometimes it's part of my brain that's like, does the person reading, do they even believe this stuff? You know, um, like, does this choir, does this, do these words mean anything to them? And then it's like, well, you know, who cares? <laughs> or I shouldn't say who cares, but it's like, but this is this is doing something 
to, to me. And so I've just found this to be a really helpful rhythm to me where Sunday morning, um, I'm giving out and doing and doing and, and then even song, I look forward to my wife and I take turns. One of us stays home with the kids. The other one goes, and then it's just like, we just sit there and just kind of let the word do its work. Yeah. Well, I, I think about that because you can have the word taught to you didactically. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful. I, I need, I, it, it's important to understand what this text means and what it's communicating and we also need it proclaimed, and these aren't mutually exclusive, but we do need it proclaimed. We need it celebrated. This is for you. It's not just true over here. It's true for you, Mike, in, in this particular way. But we also need it sung to us because it enters into our hearts and minds differently when you're hearing someone chanting a psalm or or a, a beautiful rendition of the text. We also need it prayed into us. And so a lot of the book of common prayer that, you know, we've been mentioning about 75% of it is either direct quotation from scripture or summary of scripture. I'm surprised how much scripture has snuck into my heart and mind because of the book of common prayer, because a lot of the prayers are summaries of passages. And so uh, there's a joke uh, that Episcopalians and Anglicans like to say, which is, you know, an, an older, older Anglican was uh, you know, who knows his perfect very well, uh, went, went to, uh, went to a church one Sunday and the, the, the preacher started preaching from you know, Romans or whatever it was. And, and, uh, he walks up to the pastor and preacher and says, Hey, that was a really good job. I didn't, didn't know, uh, Jesus or Paul knew the prayer book so well, ha ha ha, because so much <laughs> of the Bible's in the prayer book, but he knows mm. the prayer book that, uh, yeah. it, it, it gets confused. So, there's tons of scripture in the prayer book. But what, what that reminds me of, what you just brought up about your experience, is uh, Augustine when he talks about rhetoric and on Christian doctrine. I, I get my, I get my three tracks of preaching and teaching and thinking about communicating the word of God uh, from Augustine. Now he's talking about rhetoric, but I apply this to particularly preaching. He talks about um, inform which is to you know, teach. What does the text say? Inform, delight, inform. Um, inform, delight, inform. For me, that's helpful. What does, the first thing I want to make sure is what does the text in front of me say? I want to say true things about this text to these people. I want to honor the authority, uh, the intent of the text, what God is revealing in that text through that inspired author to that particular audience at the time. What's the original meaning as close as I can get to what the text is trying to say and communicate? And then the delight is, okay, this is what the text is saying, but what's the good news? What What's the proclamation of what God is doing in that text? Is he, is he cutting through sin that needs to be removed? Is he highlighting the glory of the resurrection and the world that's to come? Um, what, is, what, what is being said that is delight to the soul and would cause me to not just go, oh, God, I know what you're doing, but go, I know it, I see what you've done, and I am grateful for it. So love and it, it, what, what triggers gratitude and worship for God? And then form, what what does this mean? What does it mean if this is true? Does this mean I, is my, is the response repentance? Is the response 
God has been generous. You're invited to respond generously. Uh, God has been patient. You're invited to respond patiently. What does that mean for your life as you walk out the door? God has brought you good news. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news to others? So those three words are really helpful for me. Inform, delight, inform. Uh, That's going back to the first, you know, first few questions in this conversation where we are now, my preaching teaching now follows those three. Those are three goals because, because what I told you about my first sermon was I was a lawgiver with no gospel. So I swung to the other extreme where I didn't want to put any bricks in anyone's backpack and ever tell them that they should be expected to do anything. Well, that's not helpful. That that turns into antinomianism pretty quickly. And then I realized, okay, my Calvary Chapel, my Calvary Chapel training and and early on from Bible college and, and throughout seminary, what does the text say? Expositional work. My gospel proclamation, what is the delight and then, because I know in, indicatives lead to imperatives, there's no imperative, there's no, there's no um, command without a reason. What's the ground for that imperative? What's the indicative? What has God done that invites you to do something? And so that's, it actually has put my kind of, um, my denominational connections and growth, Augustine put them all together, and I feel like I'm, I feel like I kind of have a finally a sense of a full orbed responsibility as a Bible teacher and preacher. Yeah, I, I don't know who said this, but you know what? There's there's thesis, antithesis, and then synthesis. And that sounds like Miss Hegel. <laughs> oh, is it? Well, I, I don't know who said yeah. it. <laughs> it's, it's the Hegelian. It's the Hegelian dialectic. Now, someone took Hegel and applied it to. Preaching, it sounds like I've never seen those two connections, but those, oh, no, I, those I just, words are from that was me. I Hegel. made that up. So I I I, I found Hegel and then I've applied it to what to what you've just to what you've just said. And that's that is, you know, the, you know, when I discovered, I guess, you know, Edmund Clowney and, and this, you know, Christ-centered preaching thing, I, I think maybe a similar thing. Whereas yeah. like I've been telling all I've been doing is telling people to love God, you know, and but not, you know, or, or giving them the choice or telling them to go be a better husband or go do this better, you know. And and then I think there was this, you know, antithesis where it was essentially just every sermon was just like, and in conclusion, just praise the Lord for his grace, you know? Um, and there's, there is a way to be yeah, formed into the kind of person that this text is envisioning. And, and, and also the text through the inspired author, like is, is giving us the power to do that. And, and this is God's approach. I mean, faith comes by hearing and yeah. hearing by the word of God. And so we don't want to get away from proclaiming whatever's in the text because God uses that. And we also know from our theology, you know, the word of God is Jesus. The next word of God is the inscripturated word of God. And then in numerous Christian traditions, the third word of God is the preached word of God. God actually uses, I mean, when you and I were throwing law bricks into people's backpacks, God in his kindness was still using it because it was true. And now he had a little bit less to work with when we were doing that, but he's faithful to bend our um, not the best way of preaching into a gift to other people, hopefully. And we didn't just crush people's souls and make them feel like they were second-class Christians um, or barely Christian. I mean, that's that's the problem of just doing law preaching is it, it, it actually, as uh, Paul Zoll 
um, who's an Anglican and he's a very good preacher and he's here in Orlando where I serve. Uh, he says, hey, people walk into church already hunched over with the burdens of their life because life is suffering. And the preacher needs to be aware of that because when they walk in burdened and all you do is put more law burden in their on their backs – you just crush them even more. Uh, the sermon is a moment, the teaching is a moment to get people to um, stop and realize they can turn their eyes to heaven and and uh, we they can drop off their burdens at the cross and that it is a different way of being related to and existing than uh, scorekeeping, which is most of people's lives. And it's not about your scorekeeping. It's not about scorekeeping. It's about what Christ has won for us. And when I heard that, that, that was years ago, I heard that, that that's in my head for the rest of my life now. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. And part of us, or maybe younger, more pugnacious preachers, um, you know, everyone's really proud. And so it's our job to kind of bring people down a notch. And maybe it's because I was a proud person and, and I am importing that onto everybody else. And uh, maybe now I've been kind of beat up by life quite a bit. And it's like, man, you know, like, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that's, that's not just like a certain section of the congregation. Like we're all battered and bruised and, you know, and, and have caused harm to others. And we're not just purely victims, but at the same time, it's like, yeah, there is this grinding nature of of life and the longer you, no one gets out of this alive and no one gets out of this without being ground down a little bit. And like, we actually have good news. And so I want to proclaim it as good news. Amen. And I, I think it's important just to stop there for a second because you just you just said it so succinctly. Um, and when when we were young and brash and a little bit more um, more arrogant, uh, we we knew we were suffering. We just denied it. Um, life life. It, I'm convinced that the deepest message of the Bible and the ministry of Jesus is the mercy of God to sinners and sufferers. Sin and suffering just go together. We're, we're, if, if we're sinning, we are creating our own suffering and the suffering for other people. If we're suffering, it's because other people have sinned against us, and we're probably responding to our suffering in sinful ways. And so sinning and suffering go together, and God's disposition toward that is compassion. There's forgiveness for our sins, and there's healing for when we've been sinned against. And so life does come because of the fall. Uh, as, as Christians, of all people, we have a category for this suffering, and it's called sin. Um, this, the sin we've done and the sin done against us and just the fall, fallen world. So if anyone should be talking about and have compassion for the human condition, it would be us. I mean, the text is filled with reasons to have compassion. So if that's front and foremost in your mind, when you step up to the pulpit, we step up to the lectern, realizing these people woke up, they got dressed, they came here, they're not getting paid to be here. They're coming out of just being faithful saints. This isn't their job. This is their life. And, uh, and, and the, I mean, we get to frame how people think God relates to them by our preaching. Most people come in either assuming, hey, God's distant and doesn't really care that much, or God's annoyed at me and he's going to get his pound of flesh out of me. Most people come with a distorted picture of God and go, no, God's not distant. He loves you. In Exodus, when the, the saint, when, when the people were crying out, he's like, I've heard, I've heard and I've seen their suffering and I'm 
I'm going to reply. He's not a he's not a deistic faraway God. He is a, a close, near, loving, compassionate God. And his disposition isn't, I can't wait for a moment to crush him. As Calvin said, it's uh, Calvin's picture of God is lavish fatherly liberality. He's waiting to gush his um, fatherly love on his children, not, not looking for an excuse to lecture and scold them. And if we can keep on repeating that to people, maybe we'll start believing that more and they'll start believing that. That's, that's the good news that people need to hear on a regular basis. That's what you and I need. As soon as you were saying about human suffering, I'm like, yeah, yeah, you know, that's us. That's our, that's our life right now. You and I could probably share stories right now of where we need a good word of God's disposition toward us. Yes. Yes, I do. And, and I just got one. So Justin, thank you for pastoring me in that moment. It's like, you know, you're like, you're saying maybe we'll believe it a little bit more. And I was like, I believe it a little bit more right now, even just, just hearing that. And that's, that's wonderful. Yeah. I had a story uh, real quick. Just, this is how it revealed to me my disposition, how quickly my default is to not believe what we want others to believe what they're preaching. Um, our, years ago, we were overseas and we found out that our house flooded. Um, and we got a call from the neighbor and said, water's pouring out your front door. Um, and the first thought that came to mind, very first thought was, you know what? Our giving dropped below the tithe. We're giving less than 10%. And this is, this God's going to, God's teaching me a lesson not to steal from him. And so he's ruining my house because we're not giving exactly 10%. That was the first thought that came to mind. Like my my instinct was God's trying to get me. And that's that wasn't me thinking through it. The, the fact that that emerged so quickly, uh, it, it scares me because that's in there still probably. And, and it comes out under pressure. And it makes me think, is that the default? Is that the default of how I'm relating to my wife mm. and my kids mm. and coworkers and friends and the people to whom I'm preaching? So uh, I, I, I need this as, uh, as much as everyone because I've had that revealed to me and wow. that scared me. So, Yeah, and you probably had good theology back then, right? I, 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 it was a time when people would have... Uh, said, you preach the gospel so strongly that we're worried that you don't have any expectations for any Christians. Are you an antinomian? I'm like, no, I believe you know, what Spurgeon said. The law always precedes the gospel. I, I am a law, gospel, Holy Spirit. What, is, what does the law say? What has Jesus done yeah. to accomplish the law? And by the ministry of the Holy Spirit being applied to me, what does is, what is walking in faith look like? That's my law, gospel, Holy Spirit is the flow. And yeah. And people were saying, you're not talking about, you're not exhorting people enough. You're probably an antinomian. You don't believe in the law of God. And so it was in that time where people would have called me Captain Grace that I was doing karma to myself. Yeah. Turns out deep down, you really believe in the law of God a lot. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. So much that, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, you, wow. So you, you've talked, we've, in this past few minutes, we've talked about like, sinning and suffering, you know, the, the human condition is one of like sin and suffering or, or even being sinned against and then suffering as, as a result. Um, so I know that you and your wife, Lindsay have written books for survivors of abuse, um, both rid of my disgrace about, um, sexual abuse and sexual assault, And then also, um, isn't my fault, which is about domestic abuse and violence. So being aware that it's not just that 
there might be abuse survivors in our church congregations, but that statistically there are. Um, what, what are the sort of things that preachers should be aware of when we get to stand up behind the lectern or the pulpit and open God's word, knowing that there's survivors of abuse in our congregations? Before I get to that, just a little prolegomena or intro, when I'm thinking about preaching, I have in mind three people. I don't remember where I heard this from, uh, but three types of people, skeptics, apathetic, and brokenhearted. So what what do I – I want to say true things with a skeptic in mind, with someone who's apathetic in mind, and someone who's brokenhearted. Now, I believe that's important because those three things are usually always going on in my heart. Sometimes, Where am I skeptical? Where do I just – you know, I'm apathetic, and where, where am I brokenhearted? Now, when you ask the question – so that's, that's a framework for preaching that yeah. is in mind of who I'm imagining who's out there. Now, your question leads – very quickly to the brokenhearted because people who have survived abuse uh, frequently uh, would describe themselves as brokenhearted or experiencing trauma. Now, the great thing about what we, you and I have been talking about, Christ-centered preaching, um, and the Anglican uh, tradition is that the entire year is followed, it, it follows the person and work of Jesus Christ. It follows anticipating his arrival to the incarnation, to the revealing of who he is, to his life, death, uh, resurrection, ascension. I mean, it it goes through the life of Christ. Now, what's beautiful about that is that you and I know without, you know, you don't have to be Anglican to say this, Christ-centered preaching is the key. We're preaching the person and work of Jesus Christ. The, my tradition just does that all the time in the sense of the personal work of Christ. The key uh, people who have suffered abuse, uh, the word we use for that is the the effect is disgrace. Um, that's why the book is called Rid of My Disgrace. It comes from Tamar, who was abused by her brother, and she said, who will rid me of my disgrace? And so we, the kind of broad category we use for that is disgrace. We do that because it's in the text, but also because the grace of God is so central to the scriptures that we want to connect the grace of God to the disgrace that people feel. Well, how do we, what's the ultimate way that we understand and see and experience the grace of God? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we go through the works of Christ. Uh, there was a, a great quote from J. Uh, J. Gresham Machen. He said, Jesus is our Savior, not by virtue of what he said, not even by virtue of what he was. So he taught good things and he was the God-man, but by what he did. It's talking about the work of Christ. So in the incarnation, in the life, death, crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, and return, uh, as, again, sorry to do this, but as Calvin said, when Jesus incarnated, redemption began. It's not just the cross and resurrection. That's the bullseye. Cross and resurrection is the bullseye of the work of Christ in the gospel. But his incarnation shows us that he gets it. He's near. He understands the human condition and he's going to make all things new from the inside out. He was perfectly obedient to the law of God, and he was righteous. Why is that important? Well, it's not just because he gets our human condition and suffering, but he is perfectly righteous. And what does Paul say? That we are declared righteous. We're the righteousness of God. Someone who's experienced abuse needs to know, does God get this? Is he far away? No, God gets it. Jesus gets it. He was betrayed in his ministry. He was lied about in his ministry. Um, and he was physically harmed. He was socially mocked. Uh, he was humiliated. Survivors of abuse get 
what he experienced in his life in the incarnation. But they feel like they're 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 broken. They feel like they are um, damaged goods. They have an identity bestowed to them, and so to have the perfect righteousness of Christ as a being declared to them, uh, the Paul's words for those who are in Christ are pure, perfect, righteous, holy, without spot, blemish, or wrinkle. Those are amazing words that we are called if we're in Christ. And because of his death, he's taking any any guilt that we have. Um, we're not guilty for suffering abuse, but we frequently respond to being abused in sinful ways. And so we're, f- we're forgiven of that. But the resurrection is our hope in the middle of darkness. You know, despair, depression, and darkness is a common effect of surviving abuse. And the resurrection is God punching holes in the darkness and making life from death. He is currently on his throne where he is inter- interceding for us. He's mediating before the Father, and he's advocating against condemnation. And he's going to return and make all things right. He's going to deal with justice and, and bring the new heavens and new earth. So there's a lot of, uh, because of the Christ-centered focus that we have, that's, that's the sweet spot of what people who have suffered abuse need. People who suffered abuse don't need more advice on how to deal with trauma. That's that's what a therapist is for. <laughs> um, now, of course, of course, proclamation of the gospel is therapeutic. I'm not separating the two, and I think um, I think that what a Christ-centered preacher would say with abuse survivors in mind is exactly what they need to hear. Because it's not about what are you going to do to heal yourself. It is the declaration from Jeremiah, you will be healed. This is what God is doing. So all the stuff we've been talking about, about God, humor, word, focus, and law and gospel and brokenhearted, all of that comes to bear in Christ-centered preaching. So the great news is those who are listening, who are going, hey, I'm a, I like Christ-centered preaching, um, you know, but I don't really feel equipped to do all this you know, care for survivors and mm. preaching. Uh, you're already doing it. That's mm. what they need to hear. Mm. Now, being sensitive to that is important. And this is where expositional teaching is very huge uh, for the survivor community is that a part of trauma response to abuse is a disordered imagination. Um, PTSD survivors have a disordered imagination because the trauma has disordered how they view themselves, God, and the world. And the beautiful thing about the biblical narrative is this a different picture of the world. Uh, the, the patterns of the world go one way, but what God is doing is a different way of, it's, it's the kingdom is upside down to the kingdoms of this world. And so what it does is the biblical narrative reassembles the Christian imagination by giving survivors of abuse a new story with the narrative of scripture. So one of the most powerful things someone can do as a preacher is one, hone in on the person and work of Jesus Christ because that's where redemption is and we know that, but also teaching the entire narrative of scripture. Expositional is very powerful because it enfolds them into God's story instead of what we're tempted to do, which is flip the script and make everything about us and pragmatic stuff and staying away from the narrative. So uh, those are the two big things. There's a few other practical things, but those are the two things I want to want to say with regard to your question for survivors of abuse. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you. I mean, so it's, it's, um, 
to summarize or, or, you know, so you're not saying there's like a, a separate message or a separate gospel for survivors of abuse. It's, it's just the same gospel pressed in to, to us. Is that a proper summary? That's exactly it, is we're, we're not taking uh, the message of scripture and somehow tweaking it. We're not doing eisegesis. We're not reading into the text what we need to be there for a particular audience. We're pulling from the text what's already there and highlighting it for the context of someone who is brokenhearted, which, by the way, is all of us. But the the survivors of abuse just have their broken heartedness more front and center for us or for themselves. That's exactly it is we're in what, what we're doing is we're connecting a dotted line. We're saying, cause most people think, how does I'm experiencing disgrace way over here in this part of my life, but this preacher in the Bible keep on talking about the grace of God. And it feels like these are so far apart. I mean, it's the opposite of my disgrace is the opposite of what this person's describing. Our job is to bring those closer and connect the dotted lines and say, no, this is exactly what Jesus was doing, is that he is conquering sin and its effects in his ministry. And this applies specifically because um, what, what does Satan want? Satan, Satan hates God. And Satan wants, he can't get to God uh, directly. The second best thing he can do is get to his images and Satan wants to destroy images of God because he hates God so much. In one sense, we're collateral damage for Satan's hate of God. Now, I'm not saying that to minimize our suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying it actually maximizes our suffering. Satan hates us so much. Yeah. He wants to destroy us because we're images of God. What's a great way to destroy images of God? Abuse. It gets into their hearts and souls, and it creates uh, isolation and suffering. It's a very powerful tool for evil. That's exactly what Jesus is doing in his ministry. He is peeling back the fingers of Satan and saying, Satan, this is not your world. It's my world. It's the Father's world. He planned it. I made it. The Holy Spirit en enlivened it. It's our world. Yeah. Peeling it back It's mine. Um, and, and that's what he's doing in, on death, uh, on the cross. And that's what he's doing in his resurrection. The work of Christ is one big punching holes in the darkness that enshrouds us because of... Uh, our sin and the sin done against us. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. In 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 that book, the rid of my disgrace. Um, it's essentially it's just um, uh, not to give it away, but it's just kind of like going through the um, the various benefits of the cross and explaining how this kind of overlaps with like the the typical responses or symptoms or um, trauma caused by sexual abuse. And um, it's just kind of the same thing. Like I, I read a book years ago um, by Tabidi Anyobile called The Gospel for Muslims. Spoiler alert, it's the same gospel, you know? It's, it's just the same gospel. You know? <laughs> and I think this is the same, the same sort of thing. It's a, there's no secrets, but it's just kind of thoughtfully, theologically looking at like what has Christ accomplished? And then how does that interact with these even like highlighted needs that survivors of abuse um, often feel? That's br that's a brilliant way of putting it. it, it it's the same gospel, and I'm, I didn't I didn't know about that book, and that's exactly what I'm trying to communicate. And you said it very succinctly. But this is for any preacher or teacher. Is you have all th I think of what we have in the Bible as a huge toolbox. And again, I'm not trying to become pragmatic, but all these different tools. You have the tool of incarnation. You have the tool of perfect life of Christ. You have the tool of the substitutionary death on the cross and resurrection and ascension and, and the biblical theological trace throughout all scriptures. You have all these tools and you go, okay. And again, we're not turning people into, you know, projects, but you go abuse. 
What, what tool for this effect of abuse is most useful? Ah, the imputed righteousness of Christ. Mm-hmm. This person feels like they're filthy rags. They feel like they're damaged goods. They need to hear that in Christ they are pure, perfect, holy, and righteous. This person is so overwhelmed by despair, they feel like darkness is closing in. They need to hear that Jesus has punched holes in the darkness and he's going to make all things new. And he's not just doing that in the future, he's doing that now. And he hears them and he's going to reply because of his resurrection. What tool is practically pastorally needed? Same thing for the Muslim. Hey, we like the law of God, Allah, the Quran, and the commands, but then you actually have Jesus being sinless and fulfilling the law perfectly. Allah, or Muhammad didn't do that. Like, what, what tool is going to get a Muslim's attention? Probably the sinless life of Christ might get their attention because they don't view their leader as sinless or the, the miracle of the miracles of Jesus of the resurrection. There's certain things. What tool stands out? And that's where knowing the people to whom you're speaking is going to be so key to help connect those dots. So yeah, same gospel. I, that's important. I love the important the highlighting of that. It is the same gospel. It's just a matter of which facet of the diamond is going to uh, cast the most appealing and beautiful proclamation of God's disposition and God's work in the world for that person. Just practically, when someone is thinking about uh, no, let me give you some numbers real quick. One in four women and one in six men are or will be survivors of sexual abuse. One in five women and one in 20 men are or will be survivors of intimate partner abuse. One in five children are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. There are, if you just do the numbers on that, there are a lot of survivors of trauma and abuse in, in the congregation's already. It's not like that's a small number. It's a significant number. So being aware that they're there is important. And so there's four things I want to say, given those numbers. One is you don't have to do a whole sermon on abuse. You can, because sometimes it's in the text and it should be addressed. But you could also just say, hey, here's the gospel and it applies to the ways that we sin, and you can give specific ways that we sin, and the ways we've been sinned against. And you can just list, hey, some of us have been abused. You just have to mention it, because most people don't even connect the dots. They they don't think that their experience connects with um, this great news. And so just mentioning it is powerful. Second thing is preachers and teachers should be mindful of how they describe violence, danger, despair when it's in the text. Um, we want to be mindful that some of the, I mean, we joked about, you know, speed metal stuff, but there's a lot, lots in the Bible to growl about. There is. The Bible is actually depicting the effects of the broken world. And there is a lot of violence and some humiliation, um, again, describing the effects of sin. So being mindful of that, because we don't want to animate other people's past trauma or re-traumatize and make people feel like this isn't going to be a safe place just by being dismissive about, you know, persecution and suffering and evil. So one, just mention abuse. Two, be mindful about and sensitive. Again, you're not avoiding the text. Just be sensitive about how you describe the text. Third thing is a lot of people have been harmed in a church setting by someone in authority. A preacher has the authority of being the the Bible teacher or proclaimer. And so, um, Preachers and teachers can speak uh, 
safely speak about the unspeakable from the pulpit when they're trustworthy with um, the way they've cared for people before, with their patience. Um, and, and that comes with relationship. Don't undermine the power of the relationship of being a trustworthy, patient, caring preacher, pastor, minister, because then when you have some trust with people, you can actually say the un- talk about the unspeakable um, speak beautifully about the unspeakable pain people experience because you are holding out promises of God for the places that some people, many people, most people who suffered abuse have never told anyone about it. And so that's important. And again, that's not, I'm not trying to give preachers a burden like, hey, be trustworthy and have integrity or else. I, I, yeah, sure. But I'm saying there's a beauty to, one woman told me, she said, hey, the way you listen to me, I wear, wear a clerical collar. She said, the way you listen to me and the way you asked, may I give you a hug instead of just assuming and uh, your response was really helpful. I barely said anything. I said, thanks for telling me why. She said, because a clergy person and a collar is the kind of person who abused me when I was a child. And so just your presence of not being a man who did not, harm was step one. Being a man with a clergy collar on who listened and gave words of hope was step two. I mean, the bar for so many people are set so low. That's just helpful for us to hear. And then the last thing is preachers and teachers have an unbelievably powerful tool and God will use you. He has used you. That's what I want want you all to hear. To help survivors of abuse Tell their story in light of the work of God in Jesus Christ, particularly in the cross and resurrection. Um, It is impossible for me to overstate the importance of enfolding someone's trauma story into the redemption story of Scripture throughout the entire biblical narrative. That's where we know things are going. And to give people hope of what God is doing, what he has done, and what he will see through to completion, Philippians 1, 6. Man, you're, you're preachers. There are people who are still alive because of the good word you gave them. There are people who thought it would be better for me not to exist because they're so overwhelmed by darkness. And you probably don't even know it, but you gave them a word of hope and they went home from church and said, maybe God will see through to completion the good work he began in me. And they have hope now. And I know that because I've heard stories like that, not about my preaching. I'm hoping God does that. But I've heard story after story after story where God is so faithful to his sheep that he has led you as the shepherds to feed his sheep well. And because of your faithfulness, of teaching the narrative of scripture, of highlighting the golden thread of the personal work of Jesus Christ and what that means. People have survived the darkness of suicidal ideation and they've gone home. They have experienced more hope and healing because of your ministry. That's some encouraging stuff. God's using people in ways they have no idea. And, uh, so while we're talking about, you know, practical things for survivors, I mean, I want them to be encouraged. The power of their ministry is 
beyond what they actually imagine for the most part. Yeah. Yeah. And as you mentioned at the beginning, you know, God even uses our um, earlier law filled sermons to, to bring some people a bit of hope. And he's just, it's because he loves people, you know, he's a, he's a good God. He loves people and he'll use our offerings. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that funny to think that right now we look back to the, we, we look back to the past and we go, oh yeah, remember when we used to do it wrong and now we're doing it right. And God, and God, God's so faithful then, whew, thank God. I need that right now. There, there's probably things I do and say where I'm going, man, thank you, God, that you love these people more than I do. And despite myself. So that's encouraging now too, that he cares about our preaching even more than we do. And as preachers and teachers, we care a lot. <laughs> so Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, Justin, I know that you're rushing off to a staff meeting. Um, I would you would you mind like maybe just praying for the teachers and preachers? Uh, you know, a brief a brief prayer of of, of blessing. Absolutely, I'd love that. Uh, let us pray, holy and gracious Father. We are grateful that you have revealed yourself as holy, and knowing that we're not but gracious knowing that that's what we need. So holy and gracious father, we thank you that you have redeemed us as your preachers to you, that we are recipients of great news. And thank you for the privilege of making us agents of the very good news that we need. And so we ask that you will fill us with your Holy Spirit. So we will see Jesus for who he is and what he's done and what you have revealed in your word so we can proclaim Christ and him crucified and all of his works with clarity, with boldness and humility. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Justin, for such a thoughtful and insightful and ultimately encouraging conversation. So, Thank you very much. Um, uh, for you, the listener, I want to highly recommend and personally endorse those two books that we were talking about at the end of the episode, uh, Rid of My Disgrace and Is It My Fault? I believe that every minister, every youth pastor, or any person in any position of spiritual oversight, you've got to be familiar with the signs of abuse uh, you've got to have a plan to report evidence of uncovered abuse to local legal authorities and also work personally to have some degree of competence to be able to apply the gospel to these areas of deep and personal pain uh, alongside probably uh, professional and trained counselors but I believe that every gospel minister uh, should be aware and connected with the realities of the gospel and how they interact with these deep personal areas of pain and sometimes shame. And so for that reason, I believe that every minister should have these two books on their shelves. There are links in the show notes for those books, as well as a link to justinholcomb.com where you can find great articles and links to the 20 other books that Dr. Holcomb has either written or edited. There's a lot there, guys. 
So thanks for listening. I hope that this episode and all that we do here at the Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. I hope to see you next week at the CGN conference in Costa Mesa, California. God bless.